This morning's sermon text is John chapter 13, verses 31 to 35. John 13, 31 to 35. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. If you will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your steadfast love towards us. Thank you for the chance to break your word open. Thank you for speaking to us, Lord God. Thank you for not leaving us in the dark about what it means to love each other. And I pray that you would take your word now and use it for the building of your kingdom, for the upbuilding of our households, for the building up of your church, and for the good of our souls and for the glory of your name in all the nations. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week, if you guys recall, this is part two of a two-part series. Um, we talked about family, and I went to Matthew chapter one. We looked at the genealogy, and then we looked at the particular family of Mary and Joseph and Jesus coming into that family, and how that was kind of like the foundation of the kingdom of God. Jesus stands at the at the end of a long genealogy, and I think one of the things we came away with was Jesus welcomes sinners into his family through the genealogy of Matthew one. We, uh, we read a record of, family tree, of, a, of a family tree that began with a promise that God made to Abraham, and it ended in Jesus, and along the way, we learn that Jesus' family includes incest, prostitution, adultery, murder, and probably more, and it points to the reality of our brokenness and our own need of a Savior. So as we are saved by Jesus, we are adopted into his family. This is the church. And now, in the context of the church, we can grow in Christ-likeness and know Jesus among ourselves and then also make him known as, he's, as his love is revealed and reflected through us. That's what it means to be a family. That Jesus is reflected in our relationships so that he becomes known. So our inclusion into God's family, we also talked about, is not based upon our performance, um, but it's on God's grace and his covenant faithfulness. God made a covenant promise to Abraham, and even though Israel was so unfaithful and rebellious, God kept that promise. And um, despite the fact that we are living in open rebellion to God, he loved us anyway. And this is because God is a God of covenant. He's a God of promise. And he does not love us based on our performance, but his promise and his covenant commitment to us. That's the basis then of family. That's the foundation of family, is covenant commitment to one another. 
And um, this covenant commitment reflects God's covenant commitment to us. So when we covenant and when we commit to each other through marriage, through church membership, whatever it is, that reflects God's covenant commitment to us. Um, God asked Joseph, and we saw this most clearly, when God asked Joseph to make a covenant and to keep a covenant to marry his wife, even though it appeared at the time that she had committed adultery. And at the time, this was going to bring great reproach upon Mary and Joseph if they stayed together. And the reality is God still said, keep covenant, stay around, be the father, and, um, and, and don't break covenant. And this, through Joseph, reflects the covenant faithfulness of Jesus to his wife, the church. And I think that's what we were getting at with uh, looking at Mary and Joseph there. And as Mary and Joseph stayed faithful to this covenant, um, uh, and, and as, as, as they entered into marriage, they became a family, and this family now inaugurated the kingdom of God. And interestingly so, I thought one of the insights was that it's kind of fitting, is it not, that a family like Mary and Joseph, who were, su- who were blameless, but yet they were suffering for a sin that they didn't commit, isn't it fitting that this becomes the family that inaugurates the, 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 the kingdom of God who gives birth and raises up the Savior who is going to suffer for a sin that he didn't commit so that he could bring us into his family? So that's what we saw in that. And then I ended last week and crescendoed on the note that, that the church and family are suffering in our country greatly. Um, we talked about the breakdown of the family, but what leads to the breakdown of the family? And what I suggested is that it's because covenant faithfulness now has been replaced with perf- personal fulfillment as our greatest goal and our greatest virtue. So let me say that again. What I crescendoed on last week is that, that we are, as a people, no longer defined by covenant obligation and fulfilling covenant obligation. That's no longer our highest goal. Our highest goal as a culture is personal fulfillment and personal expression. And when that happens, it shifts everything to an attitude of what can you do for me? What's in it for me? Versus how can I serve you? How can I live my life for your good? It, when personal fulfillment becomes our highest virtue in a culture, it puts us on a constant marketing mode, right? And it forces the church not to make disciples, but to appeal, to make sure that we're liked and that we're pressing the buttons so that you'll like us. And then vice versa, it, it doesn't allow you to be real with each other you're constantly marketing yourself in hopes that people will like what you have to offer or you'll find somebody that, like, that, that, that you like, right? So when personal fulfillment becomes our highest virtue, it, 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 doesn't, it doesn't allow the church to actually function as a, a family where our calling is to be in covenant commitment with each other so that we will make disciples for the glory of Jesus, um, so that's kind of where I crescendoed last week. And this week, I want to take up where we left off. If covenant now is the basis of family, that's the point I made last week, I want to ask the question and answer throughout this uh, sermon, what does our covenant then look like? What, what does it look like? How does this get fleshed out? Right? So what are the parameters for the covenant? What are the standards within this covenant? As we join ourselves 
in covenant faithfulness to each other through family, through, through, through the church, what are the parameters? How does this get fleshed out? So that's the question I want to ask and essentially answer through the, through the sermon. And there must be parameters, you see. If there are no parameters, unconditional love could be mistaken for dysfunction. Let me show you what I mean by that. Because I know a lot of people are like, where's the stone? Here's what I mean. I heard a story of a, of a landlord who would only relate to her tenants on the basis of a business relationship. And she never wanted to extend past a business relationship rather than a family relationship, which she was trying to avoid. Now, a business relationship operates on the, on the terms of performance, right? While a family operates upon unconditional love and covenant commitment. Um, she did not want to grow close to any of her tenants because what would happen if she started to develop a relationship with them, she would start to care about them. And what would happen when they're not paying their rent on time? And what would happen when um, they were damaging property or being unruly tenants? What would happen then and when she would have to confront them? This would become harder in her, in her thinking. Now, why? Why would this become harder? If you guys could agree with this to some extent, why would it become harder? Because they are becoming friends. Their relationship was now starting to operate on the basis of a family relationship, and it's moving away from a business relationship, which is solely based on performance. So when you're in a business relationship that is solely based on performance, it is easy to go up to somebody and say, you need to stop paying your rent late, or else there's going to be consequences. When the the relationship is strictly on performance business levels, Right? In a family relationship, on the other hand, it becomes a little bit more tricky because now you care about the person. Right? And the expectation is if you care about me, you would sympathize with me and accept me unconditionally. This reflects something valid, I would argue. It is valid because family is founded on covenant commitment, and, that put, and, and, and through that, we put up with things out of unconditional love that wouldn't fly in a business, right? It's not like I had a business review with my kids at the end of 2013. Well, you know, we just didn't see the growth in obedience that we were hoping for. You, you improved about 6%. We're hoping more like a 12 to 13%. We're just going to have to let you go. <laughs> we made some arrangements, made a few phone calls. Effective of Tuesday, you're gone. All right? No, because our kids, we love them unconditionally, and their basis isn't on the the basis of performance, right? So in that way, it does reflect something valid, that when you start operating on the basis of family and commitment, we just love people unconditionally, and they can get away with a lot more. But on on the reverse side, it also reflects a misconception about how family should function, It incorrectly asserts that unconditional love means that there are no boundaries or standards that guide our life together. We just love unconditionally. Do whatever you want. You're in. That's not what the Bible says. That's not the the picture of family that the Bible gives us, you see. Jesus does give us boundaries. And he gives us standards that govern our family life together. 
We read about it in John 13, 34, when he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. And then I just want to point out, too, that there's a, a, a few dozen other one another commands. Many of you guys are familiar with them throughout the New Testament. And this is kind of like the queen mother of all the one another commands, right? This is like the cornerstone. This John 13, 34, love one another. This is like the cornerstone upon which all the other one another commands are built upon in the New Testament, or to say it another way, all of the other new, uh, one another commands in the New Testament, love one another, encourage one another, be kind to one another, those are essentially fleshing out what John 13, 34 is saying, love one another as I have loved you. So since we couldn't possibly get through all of the one another commands in the New Testament, I'm going to start with John 13, 34 and 35 and really emphasize these passages Um, So what does it say? I want to ask, what does it say? How does it shape our lives together? Jesus says this, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So Jesus not only calls us to love one another, but he actually defines what that love is is for us. This is huge. If you were going to take a survey and you went out on the streets and surveyed a thousand people and asked them, what is love? You would get a range of definitions, would you not? You would get some people that emphasize what we get from love. You would emphasize, you get some people that emphasize what they give in love. You would get some people that, um, uh, that, that uh, emphasize the, the contractual nature of it and the duty of it, and then some that would emphasize the feeling of it. There would be a wide variety of definition of love. If Jesus had said, love one another, that wouldn't be very helpful. What does that mean? So he says, as I have loved you. <laughs> There's your definition. That's amazing. This is how God reveals what our life together should look like. Now, here's a few points that I want to describe what kind of love that he is talking about. I want to make three points off of this. First, it's a confronting love. Now, how do I see this? Now, the setting of John 13, 34 is the, is the Last Supper, right? Just hours before he was going to go to the cross and die on the cross to pay for our sins. Now, Jesus dying on the cross is the clearest and harshest confrontation in the human history. The cross, you see, is criticism. The cross criticizes you and me. And it's a criticism that has never been topped, right? Nobody has offered a harsher criticism than Jesus has offered you on the cross. What does the cross say? It says you are a sinner. That you are living your life in rebellion to God. That even though you think you're good, you're not. Even though you think you're bad, you are. Right? It's saying if you don't repent and if you don't live your life according to me, and if I don't become Lord of your life you are going to face eternal punishment forever and ever. This is criticism, you see. It confronts false idols. The cross does. 
and says, I am your God. I, only I can be your God. You see, Jesus says to his disciples, the world does not hate you. It hates me. Why does it hate me? Because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Jesus is criticizing. He is confronting humankind. He has confronted you. If you are in Christ, Jesus has leveled a confrontation and a criticism of you that will never, ever be topped. It doesn't get any worse than that. That's worse than saying you're evicted, right? So Christian love, I hope you guys understand what I'm getting at here. When we come as Christians to the cross, we are acknowledging. Think about this. You guys see the passion of the Christ and how horrible a display that was of Jesus' crucifixion. What that's saying is, this is because of you, right? The reason why I have to die this horrible suffering death is because of your sin. That's a terrible confrontation and a harsh criticism that's offered to us. Now, Christian love... What Jesus is saying is expressed through confrontation, not passively ignoring sins. So when Jesus says, love each other as I have loved you, it includes confrontation. It doesn't maybe crescendo there, but it definitely includes that. And the reason why I'm pointing this out is because Minnesota nice, which we kind of all live by, is destructive oftentimes. It keeps us from functioning in the family of God in ways that could be productive. You guys know what I'm talking about with Minnesota nice? I don't like you at all, but I'm just going to act like I do and then I'll backstab you or just not say it, right? Or I don't agree with you, but I'll act like I do and then I'll flesh out my disagreement elsewhere, That's not the rules for family involvement. That's not the terms of our commitment uh, that that Jesus has has covenanted with us to. Right? One of the parameters and boundaries for Christian living is that we can offer confrontation. This is love, you see. This can be love. Instead of confronting sin... It's our tendency to sweep it under the rug, and the problem doesn't go away, you see? We all know this. It doesn't go away. It just gets worse and worse, and it divides us further and further. So as Christians, what I'm getting at is we should be able to offer and, and accept criticism better than anyone. Why? Because nobody can top the criticism that Jesus has already offered you. You say I'm too controlling? That's it? That's all you got? (laughs) Jesus was so much more thorough. Jesus more thoroughly rebuked me than that. You see, understanding the cross and understanding the critique that it brings to us, I think gives us a thick skin to be able to come to hear hard things about ourselves, perhaps. Now, second... It was a love that was compassionate. It was a confronting love. It's a compassionate love. Even though the cross is the worst criticism in all of history, it is also 
at the same time, the greatest expression of compassion, mercy, and grace. And this is a, it's, it's a criticism and a compassion simultaneously, you see. They're not separated. They're simultaneously a harsh criticism and an amazing compassion. And this is a big deal, and here's why. Because, well, let me back up just a minute, and I want to flesh this out a little bit. How do we see criticism and compassion? At the same moment that Jesus confronts us of our sin, we also see him dying on the cross to pay for it. So his, his confrontation of us is never separate from his compassion for us. It doesn't go very far from confrontation to compassion. It's one and the same. Jesus confronts us, and at the very same breath, it's compassion. I love you. The reason why I'm confronting you is because I want you to love me, and I want to be in relationship with you. So consider our two family contexts. I want to talk about the nature of confronting and offering compassion and merging those two together. One being our nuclear family and the other being our church family. So all of us can understand that we operate within those two contexts. In a nuclear family, it is really easy to let criticism fly, even though it is not filled with compassion. Do you guys agree with that? The closer you get to people, the more you live in quarters with each other, it's just easy to let, uh, let criticism and let, compa- or I'm sorry, uh, confrontation fly without any compassion. We say really harsh things to people within our family, say, that we wouldn't share with our church family. I don't know if you guys would agree with that or not, but the hardest place for whatever reason to be a Christian is in your home, is it not? Maybe it's because we've covenanted with each other and we're stuck with each other. (laughs) Sorry, we're not going anywhere. You're going to see all sides of me. I don't care. Right? Just last night, there was an incident in our home, believe it or not. Somebody rudely took all the warm water that left the next child down with a cold bath. I was trying to round up the troops for family worship, right? Trying to do the spiritual thing. You know, and two of the three are down there, and then there's one kind of whimpering up upstairs, and I'm hearing it, and I'm like, where is this person? And Karen kind of understands I'm getting agitated. She's like, maybe you should go up there in patience and gentleness and deal with it. <laughs> Notice the caveat. In patience and in gentleness... I heard somebody say, oftentimes when I hear the voice of God, it sounds like my wife. God was speaking. Go up there in patience. Because my heart was about to say, get downstairs, we're going to have family worship. All right? I don't care if you had a cold bath. Deal with it, it's life. Now let's go worship Jesus. It's so easy to let it fly in the home. 
I would never act like that. And by the way, I didn't, for the record, did not say that. I thought about it, but... I would never act like that in our church family. You guys would probably say things and do things and act in ways in your home that you would not act out on in the church family. And that's a good thing, let's just say that. But what I'm getting at is, in one context, it seems really easy to offer confrontation without compassion. And in our church context, perhaps, it's really easy to offer compassion with no confrontation. You guys see what I'm saying here? How do we deal with conflict and issues in church family? Well, we're really nice. We don't confront it. We don't deal with issues. But nonetheless, it drives us away further and further. Instead of lashing out, we just don't go anymore. We just don't hang out with that person anymore. We just distance ourselves. And see, both are bad. We would agree that when we are harsh with other people, it drives them away from us. And when we have no way of actually dealing with issues, then it also drives us away from each other. We need a balance. We need, con- we need con- confront- confrontation with compassion. Those two things can't be separated. And when those two things come together in perfect unity, we have a basis for which we can do family life together on. Jesus confronts us with perfect criticism and perfect compassion together. And you know what's at stake with it is a relationship. You see, when we are going to, when we are willing to address things that are standing in our way, you know what it does? It actually highlights the worth of the relationship. When Jesus comes to us, you know, see, Jesus doesn't do either. Uh, he doesn't come to us and harshly rebuke us. Oftentimes in family, if we're being really honest with ourselves, the reason why we're harsh in our confrontation is because we're just venting our frustration. You have frustrated me. You are cramping my style here. I'm going to let you know how much you are frustrating me. That's why we act out. Jesus doesn't act like that to us. He doesn't go to the cross to make us feel rotten about ourselves. He goes to the cross so that we can be welcomed into his family and forgiven. He doesn't act out of hurt because we hurt him. He acts out of compassion towards us. You see, Jesus isn't interested in venting his hurt back to us. He is interested in restoring our relationship. And by the same token, he isn't interested in flattering us, saying, oh, it's really not that bad, but it's really bad. He doesn't act as if nothing's wrong. He says, no, there's something wrong. We have to deal with it. And because he perfectly blends together criticism with compassion, he restores us to himself. And now we are family because of it. So when we actually say, you know what, this is an issue, but I'm going to deal with it, I'm going to say something that might be uncomfortable to my brother or sister, 
It's because we value that relationship and we value that person so much that we're not willing to let anything come in and separate it. Kind of the worldly idea is that confrontation is bad because I don't want to make you feel bad about yourself. A little pain might be necessary, is it not? In order to pursue the greater reality of having a relationship with each other. And in our family, in our household, we have to balance, I think, a confrontation filled with compassion and patience and love. And we have to balance in our church family, I would argue, uh, a confrontation with compassion as well. We have to have both. And in Christ, this love that he loved us with is both coming together. A third point is it's a sacrificial love. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For even the Son of Man, Mark 10.45, came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. God's family is marked by people who are living in covenant commitment with each other for the good of other people. You see, the world says personal fulfillment, I think, is the pathway to joy. And in the short term, I think personal fulfillment, when we make that our highest priority, does give us short-term joy. But it doesn't provide long-term reward. And in God's kingdom, because I don't want to make this sound like we're this ascetic, masochistic, you guys know what masochistic is? People who enjoy pain. We're not just dying to ourselves and we're just putting off ourselves. We're not just doing that for the sake of dying to ourselves and taking on hardship. We're doing it because this is the path of Jesus. And Jesus said, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. In the kingdom of God, short-term sacrifice often produces long-term reward. Right? So the love that marks us as a family is a kind of love that lives for the good of other people. It might mean short-term sacrifice, but it's long-term gain. Nobody can calculate the joys of a married couple that have committed to each other and covenanted with each other and have grown deeply in love with each other over decades. Nobody can can put an estimate on the joy that comes from a church family or a a relationship that you have developed over years and even decades of time. There's so much richness that comes from walking in life together and dealing with sin and overcoming obstacles and seeing Jesus being faithful through all of that. Nobody can estimate how much reward and richness comes from a lifetime of that. Amen? So the love of Jesus is a confronting love, it's a compassionate love, it's a sacrificial love. And this is the the way that Jesus defines our relationship with each other. In the house, uh, family covenant commitment um, is not an amoeba of meaninglessness. It has life-giving parameters to it. Now in a household, the household unit also has parameters to it as well. It says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. You see how the household now has parameters, it has guidelines, so that Jesus will be known and shown in the home. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives, submit to your husbands. Help him to carry out the leadership that God has placed upon him. 
It also has instructions for how parents deal with children. Don't provoke your kids to anger. Don't do that. But bring them up in the fear and discipline of the Lord. It gives us, it gives us parameters to function in the home. And children, obey your parents in the Lord. I want to talk to the children here just for a minute, okay? So if you are considering yourself a child, listen real carefully here. Children, God has made this real simple for you. He's boiled it down. That's a great thing. Obey your parents. Honor your father and mother. That's your job. You have a ministry role in your household. That's significant. Obey your parents. This is very simple. It's hard to do. It's like losing weight. Losing weight is not very complex, but it's hard to do. Children, this is hard to do, to obey your parents and honor them always. But it's very simple. This is what God wants for you. I often tell my children, I wish I would have learned how to obey when I was a child. Because in God's kingdom, you either learn how to obey when you're a child or you learn how to obey when you're an adult. And I had to learn how to obey as an adult. And it is much harder to learn how to obey as an adult than it is as a child. And if you can learn how to obey your mom and dad, God is training you to respond to him and to be obedient to him. And when you are older, this will serve you so well, you see. If you can learn how to obey your mom and dad now as a child, God is working in you a heart that's going to be responsive to him And your life will be filled with untold blessings as you simply learn how to follow Jesus. Just listen to him and obey. Trust and obey. You're learning something that is going to serve you so well throughout your life. So I just want to encourage you, children, obey your parents. If you're a teen, right, and you have a hard time, I don't understand my parents. Because let's face it, you get there from time to time. I would just say, God is teaching you something and he's training in you something that's very important. You may not understand it, but it's crucially important. And have some mercy on your mom and dad. Understand, they love you. And it's hard. Parenting is hard. One day you're going to be a parent, maybe. And you're going to love your child and you're going to struggle to do the best thing for them. So have some mercy on your parents. Learn to obey them. Learn to submit your will to them, even though you may not agree with them. It doesn't mean that you have to be zero, like you get no say in the matter. I would encourage parents, involve them in the dialogue. Let them press on you. Cultivate a kind of relationship where they can say, Dad, I think you're kind of sinning here. If you don't have that kind of relationship, I think, with your teens and with your children, I would encourage you to cultivate that kind of relationship with them. Make them a part of the process too. They're part of this covenant community. They have a participation to play. So these covenant clarifications does at least three things for us. It helps us to know Jesus. I want to just flesh these out just a little bit. As, as God gives us clarifications and parameters for the, our covenant life together, I think it does these three things. It, it helps us to know Jesus. 
It helps us to show Jesus, and it helps us uh, give us identity, both individually and corporately. Let's just take the first one. It helps us to know Jesus. Just before Jesus gave the command in verse 34, love one another, look at what he says in verse 33. He says, little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. You see what Jesus is saying here? I'm leaving, and we're going to be separated. But then he says, but love one another, as I have loved you. And what I'm getting at here is, I think that if you, Jesus is saying, if you carry out my love among yourselves, I will remain in your midst. Even though I'm leaving, I will be here with you if you love one another as I have loved you. So he's kind of saying, I'm leaving and you can't come there, but I'm kind of not leaving too. If you love one another as I have loved you, now my presence remains in your midst and you will know me and I will be present with you. To the extent that we keep the commandments of Jesus is the extent that we will experience his presence and salvation among us. Right? So to the extent that we, that we keep the commandments of Jesus is the extent that we will experience his presence in our midst. That's the extent that we will see him and feel him remaining with us. He's given us commands. And as we take those seriously, we make him Lord in our lives. And he's there. Right? I often say this to my children. We want Jesus to be the Lord of this household. So therefore, this is the way he said it should function. And when we do that, Jesus is sitting on the throne of our home. And he's with us. And we experience him. I'm leaving you, little children, but I will stay with you if you keep my commandments and you make this the basis of your relationship with each other. Second, we show Jesus. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. If you know Jesus, you will automatically show Jesus. Right? If Jesus stirs and brews in your midst, it will just naturally spill out. You will have the aroma of Christ, both individually and as a family. Loving one another puts us on mission with Jesus. You see? It's a display of, his, of God's grace and his love. This is the purpose of family. I've said it, but I'm going to say it again. To know Jesus in our midst and to show Jesus by allowing his commands to shape our life together. While everyone has a definition of love, no one would define it the way that Jesus does. So our love for each other is literally the equivalent of doing evangelism or missions through community, through family. You see, our world lives in isolation. They don't know what it looks like to live together and deal with issues. But when we display that, we're proclaiming the good news of the gospel through our community. And uh, a last point, we gain identity within our covenant roles in the kingdom of God. If love is an amoeba or blob with no form that's left up to mean anything, then it means everything. And if it means everything, it means what? It means nothing then. 
If love has no form and it's just kind of up for grabs and anybody can really define it, then it means everything. And when something means everything, then it means nothing. Right? And if love doesn't have any meaning within the family, then each family member has no identity. Fortunately, Jesus defines our roles within family, and he defines the basis of our commitment to each other. Now, the upshot of this, then, is that we have an identity that matters eternally. Because we are defined now by the love of Jesus, and we're defined by knowing Jesus and showing Jesus, and we all have a part to play in it. That brings us an identity that is truly worth uh, seeking after. That gives us eternal meaning. Why? Because it's not a self-made identity. It's something that will last into eternity. So we know Jesus, we show Jesus, and we gain identity when, when Jesus lets his commands be the basis of our relationship with each other. Now, in conclusion, I want to encourage us to do a couple of things. Make life together a priority so that we'll have the opportunity to know and show the love of Jesus. We live, sin, sin isolates and it divides, right? In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, they sinned. What happened then? They ran and they hid themselves from God. And then they hid themselves from each other. And then they blamed each other. It isolates and it divides. And we can go down the list of all the different ways that sin has ravaged our culture and our communities But one thing is for certain, it isolates and it divides. How can we be together and show the love of Jesus if we're never actually together? Right? How can we love each other the way that Jesus is calling us to love each other if we're not actually together? And for the sake of time, I'll move on. But we could go down the list and figure out what are some of the barriers that keep us from engaging with each other? Maybe it's things like preference, it's inconvenient, right? I'm over busy, and I don't want to minimize the fact that we do live in busy lives. We have busy lifestyles. But I do also want to encourage us to say, this is a priority, it should be a priority. Doing life together should be a priority, So I would encourage you to join a community group or have some kind of fellowship with other believers in which you can know and show the love of Jesus. Last, make your role known in your family. I put this little thing together here. If you would like one, they're on the family ministry table. It's a magnet. I put all the one another commands. You can also find it on the insert of your bulletin, or I'm sorry, on the inside flap of your bulletin. I just put all the one another commands in the background. There's this house, and it, obviously the backdrop is dark, right? And, and then there's this shade. This is my artistic bend here. Um, and uh, it's like this, this house that's breaking forth in the darkness, because when we show, the, when, 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 when Jesus' commands governs our, our lives together, we are like a light in the darkness. We're on mission with Jesus. And this is helpful because what it can do is it can help you to understand what should our family function like. Dads, if you're looking for a way to practically lead your family, I would encourage you, start here. Go down the list. 
Maybe take one, one, another command, do one, once a day and focus on it. Talk with your kids. What does this mean? How can we do this better in our household, right? This is a good way to lead your family. If moms, this is a good way to lead your family. It's a good way to pray for your family too. You can look at yourself and say, oh wow, we're just not very encouraging in this home. Jesus, help us. We should be encouraging one another. We're not doing that. Right? So this is a good way to govern your family. And it's also a good way to include your kids and to shepherd your kids. You see, if they see where they fit in the kingdom of God, that they're not just taking directives from mom and dad, but mom and dad are saying, hey, listen, you occupy space in this home. You have a part to play in the kingdom of God. It gives them an identity within that kingdom. You are responsible for being kind to your brother and your sister. This is the standard that we want to seek. I often ask my kids, do you want to live in a house that's chaotic and filled with yelling and strife? Is that the kind of place you want to live in? No. Or do you want to live in a house that's filled with happiness and harmony, where we love each other and we care and we talk with each other? Yeah. Well, then let's make this the basis for our relationship with each other. And you have a part to play in it, too. Right? And this gives you an identity. So I would just encourage you guys to, uh, you know, I offer this to you. I'm not going to be upset if you don't take them or whatever. But to the extent that this is helpful, I just offer it to you guys. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your word. And I just pray that this would become real in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives, in our homes, and in our church. Lord Jesus, we want to know you. We want to show you. We want to understand ourselves in light of who you have made us to be within your kingdom. Thank you for revealing your love. Thank you for going to the cross and dying on the cross for our sins. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for making us a part of your family. And we pray that you bless us now in Jesus' name. Amen.